So in these, in these teachings of the current chapter on the transitional process of meditation, it's quite clear that we're now, we've now arrived, that is in the text anyway, at a very high level of practice. Uh, if we place this within the larger Mahayana framework of the five paths, uh, this would be in the area of the path of preparation. Uh, so in the regular sutrayana, sutrayana, you've realized emptiness. You have some definite realization. It's not just understanding, it's realization. But on that path, you have the first path of accumulation, then the path of preparation. And it's tra- different translations, that's as good as any, I think. But when you're there on the path of preparation, your realization still has some filtering, some screening, some configuration by concepts. And so your task there is to keep on going back into the realization of emptiness and just filtering away or filtering out any configuration of concepts, so that your awareness, your realization of, conce- of, of emptiness becomes comp- completely conceptually unmediated. And that's when we, on this Mahayana path, you become an Arya Bodhisattva. Well, in a similar fashion here for the, for the um, Dzogchen, uh, Kama Chamerabhachi does map, in fact, the different levels of Dzogchen realization onto the five paths. And you become a Vidyadhara, a Vidyadhara, which is now comparable to direct realization of emptiness, and it is direct realization of emptiness, but the difference between an Arya Bodhisattva and a Vidyadhara is that Vidyadhara has a direct realization of emptiness from the perspective of Rigpa. Whereas the Arya Bodhisattva has direct realization of emptiness, same emptiness, it's not an inferior one, but from the perspective of a conditioned mind, a conditioned mind, a mind that arises independence upon causes and conditions, so a subtle mind. Now, coming back to this text, because I'd like to give a little bit of context for it, uh, even though it's clearly very high, high practice, high realization, perhaps a bit doubtful that we're there yet in seven weeks, nevertheless, it's good to have an understanding, again, to see the connection, see the connecting all the dots, you know, between where you are in your practice right now and the actual realization of your vision of bodhicitta, of achieving awakening. <clears throat> so let us assume here that by the time you've gotten to this phase of practice, you have identified pristine awareness, you realize pristine awareness, <clears throat> but still some filtration, some, again, configuration of concepts. And so the task now is not to investigate so much as to just rest more and more deeply and release subtler and subtler vestiges of grasping of concepts, releasing all the way through. And now here's a very crucial element, unlike with the Arya Bodhisattva. For the Arya Bodhisattva, in between sessions, the Arya Bodhisattva is acting like an Arya Bodhisattva. That is, the identity of this individual is an Arya Bodhisattva, and that's what's being acknowledged by the Arya Bodhisattva. This is who I am, I'm not a Buddha yet, but, but I'm practicing, you know, on this Bodhisattva yana. But in Dzogchen, as you well know by now, you're completely relinquishing releasing into emptiness, not only the reification of yourself as a sentient being, but even the nominal status of sentient being. In other words, you're not practicing a causal vehicle, striving as a sentient being to achieve something in the future that you don't already have, but rather releasing the very notion that you are a sentient being and simply dwelling in Dharmakaya. Right? So you're jadel, 
Chandel, you are <clears throat> inactive. Inactive. Well, of course, that, that can't be silly. That is, if you really need to get a bite to eat, or maybe go for a walk or something. You don't just say, well I, well, I can't, I can't, because I'm supposed to be inactive. Obviously not. It's not going to be silly. It's a very profound meaning. And I've said it before. Bears, it bears repeating. You do your very best never to activate yourself as a sentient being. So when you get up, you're not getting up as a sentient being. It's rather a spontaneous display, a spontaneous actualization, an emergence right out of your rikpa, of your body, this illusory body, which is empty of inherent nature, just an array of empty appearances. You'll have this sense of the body rising and the appearances arising, and you're, and you're cooking some food, and you're eating the food, and you're cleaning this, you're just putting them away. But all the while, you're totally still. Your mind is not grasping onto or reifying your body that's moving about, making some tea, cooking some dinner, and so forth. You're not, and you've released, again, as much as you can on this path, on this phase of the path, release even the nominal sense of being a sentient being, which means you're totally inactive. That is, the ideal is you're totally inactive as a sentient being, but you may be as active as necessary, but your actions being just this spontaneous outflow out of rikpa. <clears throat> so it's in this phase exactly that these phrase, the fa phrases come up, like Buddhahood without meditation, or, yeah, med well, we'll see it very soon, meditation that is no meditation. Because meditation, you recall, the Sanskrit term means to cultivate. The Tibetan term, translated as, you know, we translate it as meditation, gong, has the connotation of to familiarize, right? Which would imply, you know, a new conditioning. If you're, yeah, just a new, a new habit, creating a new conditioning. So you're developing more loving thoughts toward people rather than competitive or self-serving self and so forth. But you're doing neither one now. You're not trying to create new predispositions, cultivate new habits. And you're not trying to cultivate anything. Therefore, it's called meditation that is no meditation. Because you're simply resting. But not just resting in your mental consciousness. You're resting in rikpa. Resting in rikpa. Right? And not cultivating, not striving, not doing, not modifying, not improving anything. So your, your job description now is very simple. Once you have realized rikpa and you can sustain that flow of ascertainment, that sustain that flow of identification of your own pristine awareness, which of course is a non-dual realization, then that's your only job. It's a non-job job. Because you're not doing anything. Just don't lose that. Don't lose that. So this is now, in, modern, in the modern times, this practice has been very frequently and radically taken out of context. And I think it's given rise to an enormous amount of, of confusion. Really, major confusion. Uh, because when, this is called rikpa choksha. Choksha just means like open presence or simply being present or just, just being open, right? But it's rikpa choksha. You're resting in rikpa, and from the perspective of re resting in rikpa, having ascertained rikpa, then you're just resting and seeing all appearances as arising, as the, as the pure creative effulgences or creative displays of rikpa but doing nothing, and just wide open. That is, you're not focusing your attention here, trying to achieve shamatha, that's ancient history, already done that. So you're not focusing here, modifying there, this and this and this. You're simply resting in rikpa, in this rikpa chosha, 
this open presence rooted in rikpa. And that's how you move along from the path of preparation to the path of seeing and become a vidyadhara, right? Well, this has been taken totally out of context many, many times now, especially in the popularization of Buddhism. Uh, and so then it's equated with so open presence, choiceless awareness, which a lot of people, the Pasana people have, the Pasana teachers and so forth have adopted, but choiceless awareness, that phrase, doesn't come up in Buddhism anywhere. It's, a, in, it's a, the defined and coined and defined by Krishnamurti, choiceless awareness. He's not a Buddhist term at all. And he was a very brilliant man, but he wasn't a Buddhist, never claimed to be a Buddhist. So say, to say that's a Buddhist, is Buddhist meditation is like, well, that's like saying Jungian psychology is Freudian psychology. No, it's not. They're different. And so, but it's been equated with choiceless awareness. It's been equated with mindfulness. It's been equated with bare attention and open monitoring and so forth and so on. In other words, you just kind of teach this to people just walking in the door. You'd like to, you would like to practice open presence? Good. Just sit here and just be totally aware. Whatever is coming up, just be there. Just be there. And then that's good. But to call that Dzogchen, like everything that went before the, 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 the third bardo was irrelevant, no, just go for the third one. Well, you need the first two or four, let alone the preliminary practices. Who needs shamatha, vipassana, and all of that? Just, you know, ah. So it is silly, but it's actually extremely common. There's one article written, published, uh, saying there are two types of meditation in Buddhism, concentration meditation and open presence. I was amazed. And the people who wrote it were not, not ignorant. Um, but that is so wildly incorrect. I mean, it's appealing. People like to think that. You know, samadhi, that's what the Hindus do, and some Buddhists do that. But then some you know, modern Buddhist schools kind of poo-poo the concentration part and just go for momentary samadhi or just you know, choices awareness or whatever. Uh, but that is just wildly mistake. It's just flat out wildly not true, so evidently not true that I just kind of wonder how it ever got in print in the first place. Um, because Vipassana, Vipassana, whether it's Satipatthana, whether it's Nagarjuna Vipassana, whether it's Dzogchen Vipassana, Mahamudra Vipassana, it's not just sitting there, and it's not simply concentration either. It's investigation. It's probing into it. That's what Nagarjuna was for. You know. And to throw out all of Nagarjuna, because he wasn't just teaching concentration or just open presence, it's like, what were you thinking? You know. But in any case, um, there's just a lot of rubbish out there, and that's one of the rubbishes. But now let's come back to where we are right here and now. And that is so many people are getting benefit. I mean, there's just undeniable benefit from simple open presence, choiceless awareness, simple mindfulness, you know, just being aware of whatever's coming up. To, to, to deny that that's beneficial for, it must be at least tens of thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of people is being ignorant. And we don't want to be ignorant. I don't want to be. So there is benefit there. It's simply, let's not call it what it's not. It's not shamatha. It's not vipassana. It's not mahamudra. And it's not, not, not Dzogchen. It's a very, very helpful preschool before people are ready to go into shamatha or vipassana, let alone, you know, Mahamudra or Dzogchen or Vajrayana and so forth. And so we, in the, our modern world, we are a, an unusual mutant species of the human species, Homo sapiens sapiens, what we've been doing to ourselves for the last 100, 150 years. Uh, and so, as I said so many times, we need to be bring in some remedial work to trying to get us back on par. And part of that remedial work, as I've mentioned before, is just a widespread inability of people to sit quietly. 
And this is what, you know, the MBSR type of mindfulness really helps. They open presence and TM and so forth. Not much context, but at least it gets people to just calm down and be present a little bit. And that's good. Namo, thank you. It's good. Is that a path? No. But if we don't do that, if we don't learn how to be, sit, be able to simply sit quietly and not be like those people in that, in that study where it was like 15 minutes, you remember? 15 minutes, and 15 minutes of just sitting quietly with nothing to do, and 75, what was it, two-thirds, I think, two-thirds of the men would rather give themselves electric shocks. Didn't I tell you about that already? Oh, yeah. I came out just... I thought everybody knew. No, it came out just a month ago, so I think since we've been here, very recently. Yeah, they did a study recently, some psychologists, and they had people just sit quietly in a room with nothing to do for, I think, 15 minutes, but there was nothing to do. I mean, no music, nothing at all, just sit there. But they had the option, if they wanted to, to give themselves electric shocks. <laughs> Two-thirds of the men gave themselves electric shocks. One-quarter of the women gave themselves electric shocks, and one guy gave himself 180 in 15-minute period. That would suggest a... That would suggest that Blaise Pascal was onto something, but not last year or even a decade ago. But he was writing, this great French mathematician, philosopher, devout Christian, by the way, 17th century. A little wisdom from Blaise Pascal. When I have occasionally set myself to consider the different distractions of men, the pains and perils to which they expose themselves at court or in war, Whence arise so many quarrels, passions, bold and often bad ventures, etc. I have discovered that all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. So it's interesting. One would think that would be written in 1990, right? It looks like we've been developing momentum in this direction for like 350 years. And you would not find that statement, you know, if you did a poll among nomads in Tibet 100 years ago. What you'd rather have, sit here in your yurt or shock yourself? <laughs> they would say, you are insane, right? Did you escape from someplace? Do you need, you need attention? You know, I mean, really, the question is insane, but the fact that two-thirds of the men could not bear to be with their own minds for 15 minutes consecutively. Uh, is a strong commentary on modern society. So, with that said, I have a lot of respect for people like John Kabat-Zinn and many Vipassana teachers, Zen teachers also, who may have not much theoretical background, but they just get people to just sit. And they calm down a little bit. So they overcome at least what Blaise Pascal was pointing out you know, in the late 17th century. So now a rel related point. It's a very, very deep one, but it's an empirical one. And that is, in fact, I'll just take one step. This kind of open presence. There's a book written years ago called Coming to Our Senses. I think it may be Susan Hayes, but I'm not sure. I, I, have, I haven't looked at it for a long time. But she's basically just a whole book just written about this. Come to your senses. Get out of your head, your rumination, your distractions, your compulsive ideation. Come and you know, just be present with eating a raisin, if you like, or just be aware of the, of the sensation of your body on your chair and so forth. 
come to your senses. Let it, and there's no reference to a path or achieving this or achieving that, shamatha, samadhi, first jhana. It's just come to your senses. It's good. It's good. Because it's really not so sane to want to shock yourself rather than just sit quietly. And not so sane to be always caught up in this just haze, this frenzy of an ongoing flow of thought. And so having that as a prelude, maybe some introduction to the distinction between genuine happiness and hedonic pleasure, that could be helpful. And then moving from there to shamatha, with mindfulness of breathing and soothing this beat-up nervous system, the prana system, like this Dzogchen approach to mindfulness of breathing, really helpful, and you feel it in the body. Oh, my body likes that. You know, soothing, calming, softening. And then we gradually move on, you know, settling the mind, shamatha without a sign, and then into Vipassana. And then we see, oh, now we have, we have breadcrumbs. We have breadcrumbs, a trail going from, just coming to your senses, a bit of basic mindfulness, non-judgmental, simply in the present moment, and then the breadcrumbs going all the way up to the highest realizations of Dzogchen. You know? It's good to see it's all of a piece. This is not competing factions, like the Alan Wallace team against some other team. It's not. You know? But it is, and I will stand by this firmly, let's not mix things all up and start calling you know, basic mindfulness Dzogchen, or Vipassana for that matter. To think that you're just sitting there, being mindful, attending to whatever comes up, is, is that mindfulness is Vipassana? I just kind of wonder, well, have you, have you ever read the Pali Canon? You know, it's so obviously not true. It entails some inquiry. Look at the, the Satipatthana Sutra. It's not just sitting there. It's a text that doesn't have one sentence, just sit there stupid, but rather goes on and on and describes how you really attend to, examine, investigate, contemplate the various aspects of your body, feelings, and so on and so on. So the equation of mindfulness with Vipassana, which is very, very widespread, Completely false, because that would imply that, that you don't have mindfulness when you're practicing shamatha. But when you're practicing shamatha, you're not practicing vipassana. But we all know mindfulness is absolutely integral to shamatha. You know? So yes, I will strike down, I will speak with reason, with empirical evidence, with the teachings of the Buddha, when obvious errors are being made, so we are not just proliferating confusion when we try to explain what were the words of the Buddha. So I'm happy to do that. But that does not mean that I'm dismissing the practices of simple open presence or you know, just basic mindfulness and so forth. Very helpful. But now we come to one, cent- one central point before we go to the meditation and then on to the text. And that is when you are really an accomplished yogi, you've achieved shamatha, you've achieved vipassana, you've identified rikpa, and your practice now has become radically simple. You don't augment it. You don't, try, you don't do other things. You're just, you're just resting there in non-activity, right? Uh, when you're doing this practice. When you're resting there, again, you may be walking about, cooking vegetables and so forth and so on. You may not even be in strict retreat. But something extraordinary happens. In the state of generation practice, you imagine, first of all, you, in terms of your body, body, speech, and mind, your environment, and everyone around you, you dissolve, every, by the power of imagination, you dissolve everything into emptiness, right? Then out of emptiness, you generate yourself, the mandala, you develop pure view with regards to everyone in the environment and the environment itself. And then, in terms of all appearances arising to the mind, you imagine them to be nimanakaya, emanation of Buddha, 
Nemanakaya, right? In terms of all speech, you imagine this to be Sambhogakaya. And in all terms of all mental activities, thoughts, images, memories, fantasies, the whole array, including what normal people would call mental afflictions, you're imagining them as being displays of Dharmakaya. Okay? Core. Basically, you know, really core stage regeneration practice. Right? Well, in Dzogchen, you're not imagining. In Dzogchen, you're simply viewing reality from the perspective of Dzogchen. Uh, uh, yeah, the great perfection. It is the view of the great perfection. Dzogchen meditation is nothing other. This is straight from Padmasambhava. Dzogchen meditation is nothing other than sustaining the Dzogchen view, the view of the great perfection. Dzogchen meditation, the texture in particular, is nothing other than simply resting in Rikpa and viewing reality from that perspective and doing nothing at all. And you naturally see, because that is your perspective, you see, you perceive all appearances as displays of your own Rikpa. Now, not solipsism. Not my Rikpa versus Kim's Rikpa. Not that. Because this is beyond individuality. It's beyond, is it one or is it many? Right? Beyond that whole distinction. Because it's beyond all conceptual frameworks. But it's tapped down into this deepest ground of being, ground of reality. And so that all appearances, you're seeing, you're perceiving, you're not imagining them, all appearances are arising as displays of your own pristine awareness. Their essential nature, the essential nature of this pristine awareness is empty. The manifest nature of this pristine awareness, or Dhammakaya, is luminosity. And in terms of its displays, all-pervasive compassion. Those are three qualities. Three qualities. Of Dhammakaya, Sambhokakaya, and Nimanakaya. But you're not imagining anything. That's actually how things appear to you, because of your perspective. But this means, from that perspective, the whole of reality, all appearances, people, situations, everything. From your perspective, now this is your mandala. This is your mandala, right? And Rikpa's in the center of your mandala. You've come to the ground in your mandala. From your perspective, for you, everything is arising. Homogeneously, this equal purity of samsara and nirvana, the equal purity of virtue and vice, of joy and sorrow, Equal purity. Everything's arising as expressions of the compassion, the infinite, omnipresent compassion of the Buddha mind. Reality is rising up to meet you with every single moment perfectly to facilitate, to augment your practice so that you can ever so swiftly realize Buddhahood. There are no obstacles. Everything is homogeneously arising to serve you in your practice. Everything you possibly need, from moment to moment, day to day, all arising. Just a field of blessing, homogenous at all times. No matter what happens in the world, global warming, genocide, and so forth. Of course these are evils or, or terrible things. From your, from your perspective, for your practice, all of this is arising to deepen your compassion, deepen your wisdom, bring forth the powers of your own, of your own awareness so that you can be of greater and greater service. So there it is. That's what you see. That's not what you imagine. Stage regeneration is imagining this to enable you eventually to see it as it is without having to imagine. 
Now let's come back to where we are now. We're living in a world where there are two very large paradigms, very, very influential paradigms, and they couldn't be more different. And one is the, let's call it the theistic paradigm, that runs through the Judeo-Christian, no, the Abrahamic, I'm sorry, Abrahamic traditions, that is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, but you'll find it elsewhere as well. It's basically a characteristic theism. But most characteristically, speaking as a Westerner, well, we're most familiar with the religions that you know, grew up out of the Near East. And so the view there is that the whole universe was created by an omnipotent and compassionate, infinitely compassionate God, who is really hands-on God, you know, really uh, rewarding the virtuous, punishing the wicked, wicked and and really causing what's ever happening in the world, including tsunamis and good crops and bad crops and so forth. Now, humans have some role here, you know, global warming, humans did that. But you know, you know the vision, you don't need to have me explain theism. But then, of course, it's theodicy. It's a big problem that arises for people who are holding this view. And that is, this is an omnibenevolent God who's created a world that is saturated with suffering, uh, an enormous amount of evil, and yet the same God is omnipotent and could have made it some other way, just as a minor example. Well, not so minor. I don't want to be ironic here. Uh, what about those animals? You know, they didn't get immortal souls. They're not going, you know, they're just suffering, and they all eat each other. They're either eaten or eaters, all of them, you know, and they don't even get a chance for heaven or hell. They just get to suffer for a while and then are obliterated. And then we human beings, you know, um, you know, so it's a dilemma, and it's been wrestled with by highly intelligent, very deep thinkers for centuries. No clear resolution uh, of how do you put those together. God has created everything, omnipotent and compassionate. Then why, why did he create one with a universe with so much suffering and so much evil, when after all, he could have done it differently? You know? So there's one, there's one paradigm, very strong. And the general answer is, is I came, I was grown up in a very religious family. I remember my, my grandmother, one of the dearest, most kind and warm and loving people I ever met. And to this day, she would really, in a very simple and pure face, she said, mysterious are the ways of the Lord. And then that's where I stopped thinking about it. I'm not going to give up my faith. I don't understand this. There must be a plan. There must be a plan. I'll leave it at that. And that's the end of the discussion. And you can't refute that. You can't say, no, there is not a plan. I checked. You know, you say, well, some people believe there's a plan, some people don't. You know? That some, somehow, some way, that this must make all sense. That children die of leukemia, children are born with AIDS, that tsunamis wipe out you know, 250,000 people in one, one whoosh, and so forth. There's one paradigm. It's still very strong. And then there's another paradigm you're so familiar with, I'll give it very few words. The universe is a great big mindless machine. It, it operates according to amoral, inexorable laws of, of, of the universe, of nature, physics, chemistry, biology. Human beings are simply coming out of this, coming out of inorganic matter, a biological evolution. This, too, has no real meaning into it. It's simply survival so that we can procreate, survive and procreate. Uh, but there's no meaning in that, and there's no ethics in that. There's no ethics in evolution. Do you survive or not? Do you procreate or not? I mean, that's the issue, but... Virtue, just the word virtue has no meaning in the context of evolution and biology. 
Just is it, is it conducive to your, you or your tribe or your species survival or not, and, and perpetuation of the species or not. But ethics, or whatever you say it is, it's simply subjective. So I don't need to elaborate on that, you know that. So where does Buddhism fit in? Because it's clearly not mechanistic materialism, but it's clearly there's no notion that, that some benevolent God created all of this, that somebody punishes us, rewards us, creates tsunamis, great good crops, bad crops, and so forth. There's no such notion in Buddhism, that the Buddha did this, you know, that the, you know, the highest being did this. So when it comes to our human existence, just taking this as one example, and we encounter felicity and adversity, we start a business and it goes bankrupt, having gotten a very good education and strive very hard and being extremely intelligent, and then just rotten luck. The economy collapses just when you're starting out, you're, you're, everything just goes down the tubes. Another person being kind of a playboy and goofing off and so forth invests in some company that it named out for a piece of fruit, you know, and then, you know, and then a decade later, man, Apple turned out to be a good investment. Yo-ho, you know, and the guy's a total schmuck. Just had, you know, 10,000 bucks and then all of a sudden now it's, you know, 200,000, a million, whatever. And so there's no justice in all of that. It's quite clear, right? There's no justice in that. Good people are in this lifetime, good people are not always rewarded. People who do terrible things are not always punished. If you strive very diligently, you may succeed, but then on the other hand, you may not. And so if you're working within a materialist paradigm, you just say, that's the breaks, that's luck. It's sheer blind luck. And that's it. There's nothing more to talk about. Stuff happens. From the Buddhist, and then other, and then let's not linger there, but okay, God, well, okay, God has something to do with it. I don't know. But in Buddhism, it's karma. And so here we are. Let's not go into deep into Buddhist metaphysics, but a very simple thing. And that is insofar as our aspirations are mundane aspirations. They're worldly aspirations. Aspirations of this life for greater success, financial success, greater enjoyments, greater prestige, status, acceptance, acknowledgement, reputation, greater power and influence. Insofar as those I call the three jewels of the mundane world. Uh, power, prestige, and wealth. Insofar as that's where the orientation is, then whether you succeed or not, it's a matter of karma. I mean, clearly, striving hard and all of that. But finally, do you succeed or not? Well, it's really more karma than anything else. That top what you're born with, as opposed to what you're doing in this lifetime. And so, that's mechanical. It's mechanical. It's not simply fate, because we're creating new karma every day, every time we engage in a voluntary action. We are further ongoing in an ongoing fashion, creating our future. But the force of karma, past life karma, very, very strong. So God didn't do it. It's not a mindless universe. Ethics is not simply a subjective whim. It's built into the very fabric of the universe. But um, it's really, basically, as you sow, so shall you reap when it comes to the mundane. But what about this one? What about this one? When the, there's this phrase, the four thoughts that turn the mind. You've heard of those. Meditation on precious human rebirth, impermanence, suffering, and karma. And it's, it, the mind reverses. The mind experiences a revolution, an about-face. That all that which had previously been enormously important, right? The three, six material success and all of that, 
Now they're fading off into the shadows, and that which had been of no significance at all is now paramount. And that is, it's really a simple thing, and that is we're oriented now towards eudaimonia, towards genuine happiness, which spells out over time as freedom, as liberation and awakening. But it's a simple term, and it's not just a Buddhist term, this eudaimonia. Or I check with my wife, who's an outstanding Sanskritist, and the closest we, and what we have, and I've commented this earlier, uh, in the mudita, mahamudita, you remember? May all sentient beings never be parted from sublime happiness. You remember that one? Sublime happiness devoid of suffering, devoid of sorrow. And the, the Tibetan is uh, dewadamba, dewadamba. And Vesna told me, because I, I check variations, and uh, it's sat-sukha, sat-sukha, sublime, sat, sat-sukha, like sad-dharma, sad-dharma, sublime dharma, dambechu, sad-dharma, but when it's sukha, it becomes sat-sukha, sublime or genuine happiness, eudaimonia, what's, what's so close to what Socrates was talking about. And so when there is this turnabout, that our hopes, our aspirations, our longings, our efforts are not focused in good fortune, finding good fortune and avoiding bad fortune or misfortune within samsara, but is oriented towards actually cultivating genuine happiness and its root causes, turning one's, the whole, like turning a vessel that you're now set new charts, a new navigation chart, a new destination, and you're now oriented to pursuing a path of dharma. Now what? in terms of opportunities of meeting qualified teachers, finding good teachings, finding good con- condu- conducive circumstances, and so forth. Now that we really, when the mind turns, and it turns, it's really a conversion, not necessarily to one religion or one sect or what have you, but a conversion really, and I'm a big evangelist for this conversion, a conversion to the pursuit of eudaimonia, where the hedonic is to serve that. We don't scoff at it, as if good health and, and so forth is something you know, of insignificance. No, but it's in the service of eudaimonia. But now when we, when, the, when, the, when we have this conversion to, the dedication of a life to eudaimonia in this lifetime and the future lifetimes, are we still, in terms of how lucky are we, how fortunate are we, do we encounter the, the individuals, spiritual friends, teachers, and so forth and so on, is that too simply a matter of karma? If it were, then the word blessing would have no meaning. Have no meaning. It's just, hey, that's your karma. Oh, you had a connection with this holiness Dalai Lama. Good karma. Oh, you, uh, you know, etc., etc. Good karma, good karma. No, it's not that. It's not to say that karma is irrelevant, but it's not just karma. Otherwise, the Buddhists would just have to say, we can teach you dharma, and then just watch and see what happens. You know, but the Mahayana view of dharmakaya, sambhogakaya, nirmanakaya, being ongoing, flow, influence, blessings throughout the universe is because it's not just karma, not just getting our just desserts, getting what we deserve from past karma. There's blessing. That's why we have all these prayers of supplication. Calling for, making ourselves receptive to, suitable vessels for, attentive to, blessings flowing in. So here we see, again, something that's not binary, it's a spectrum, just like how lucid are you in a dream, and so many, and how, how far have you developed along the path to shamatha, how, how clear, how unfiltered is your realization of emptiness, or of rikpa. We find so many cases, not just yes or no. It's a gradient, right? In this gradient of to what extent have we turned away 
from the fixation to hedonic concerns, avoiding hedonic suffering and finding hedonic pleasure, to the extent that we've reoriented away from that, turned our attention to the cultivation of genuine happiness and its causes, the things like ethics, samadhi, and wisdom, then here's a big hypothesis. To the extent that we make that turn, to that extent, reality rises up to meet us. doesn't matter your karma. Reality rises up to meet us. That's a hypothesis. Now, it's been one tested many times. It sounds very metaphysical, perhaps theological, and so forth and so on. All very well. But for me, it's not. I have no problem with metaphysics. It's very interesting. I've studied it. But this, you can take it, you can pluck it from the realm of metaphysics and bring it into the context of your life into a radically empirical context. As you turn your aspirations, your values, your ideals to the eudaimonia, you turn to dharma, you are making a conversion to devoting yourself to dharma, do so with humility, with faith, with enthusiasm, with confidence, with energy, and then keep your eyes open. Watch. Watch what happens. And see whether anything unusual happens. Now, you, many of you know my story. Maybe one person doesn't. I'm going to make it really short. But I was feeling such a conversion when I was 20. I was definitely moving towards it before then. Picked up with this one book on Dzogchen. And I was, I was definitely getting converted. This is what I've been looking for, and not any of the other. That's what I was looking for. And then towards the end of the summer hitchhiking around Europe, you know the story, it got to a crescendo, kind of a crisis, like a sense of urgency. And for me, being a 20-year-old American, my archetype of wisdom was a wise old man. You know? And I wrote in my journal, I really need to meet a wise old man that's going to give me some direction. It's not enough to have a good book. I need to meet a wise old man that will give me a nudge, show me the what direction to go. And I wrote it and I said, and I need this now. Make it snappy. Hitchhiking on this long road between Bergen and Oslo, meet a Buddhist monk who picks me up. There's a hitchhiker. Back then, maybe there were a half dozen monks in all of Europe. And he lived in Nepal and lived with Tibetans. And I told him, and he, and he drove me 10 minutes on the road, which was useless. Because it's a long road between Bergen and Oslo. He took, it was completely useless. But in those 10, 15 minutes, I learned he was a Buddhist monk. He learned that I was, had some questions. And he gave me just the advice I needed. He gave me just the advice I needed. He gave me just the advice I needed. Yeah. I won't say what it is. It was just what I needed at that time. And then I've been watching since then. I'm not going to give you my life story. Many of you know probably more than you want to know already. But um, I've been watching. And just seeing how just one opportunity after another, after another, after another has opened. You know, in sequence. Not just a jumble of, we'll have some good stuff. But a sequence. And it continues to this day. And I know that it's not because I'm something, someone special, but the motivation is special. The motivation is special. The aspiration to devote oneself to Dharma. And so this is, for me, 64. I've been doing this for 44 years consciously. I say the evidence to me is conclusive for myself. And I don't think I'm the only one on the planet for whom this has happened. In fact, I know I'm not, because I've spoken with other people as well. Therefore, I run an experiment for 44 years. I'm still running it, still watching. And this suggests the universe is eudaimonia-friendly. 
it's not hedonism friendly. It can be brutal, savage, excruciatingly painful. Hedonically, good luck. But it's not good luck. It's as you sow, so shall reap. It's not a mindless universe, nor is it God, in the Buddhist view, God you know, having his chosen one or his chosen people and rewarding these and punishing those forever. No notion of that in Buddhism. But there it is, in the center of your mandala. Watch what rises up to meet you. And then, it's not just watching. You also need to be cultivating wisdom. You need to recognize when the blessing comes that it is a blessing. It doesn't always come with a sugar coating. It's not always sweet. It doesn't always come with a smile. It doesn't always come in the form of felicity or good fortune. But nor is it simply the psychological technique of making lemonade out of lemons or seeing the silver lining around the clock around the cloud, or making the best of a bad situation. Those are all very nice mundane suggestions. You know, they're psychological. Well, what can you do? Try to make the best of it. Stiff upper lip. You know, true grit. It's not that. I mean, that's fine. But it's just a psychological gimmick, which is fine. It's a better gimmick than a lot of other gimmicks. It's not that. This is actually seeing with the eyes of wisdom how even that which to other people would be adversity because the center of their universe is all hedonic. For you, because the center of your universe is really oriented towards the eudaimonia, this actually is a blessing. And I'm not just imagining it, I'm seeing it with eyes of wisdom. And there it was felicity, and that was very pleasant, and that was very helpful, that was a blessing. And there was adversity, and there was a very difficult person, and there was a wonderful person, and there was a great lama, and here's a person who robbed me blind. And seeing each of these arising as a blessing. So that's a big hypothesis, that the whole of reality, the universe, is user-friendly to the practice of Dharma. If that's true, that changes everything. You don't have an omnipotent. Buddha is not omnipotent, never said he was, is not. The Buddha said, I cannot just rinse you with water or wave my hand or something and make all your mental afflictions go away. If the Buddha were omnipotent, he'd say, everybody want to be awakened? Yeah, okay. You know, and everybody would be fine except for he doesn't have that ability. No Buddha does. Dhammakaya doesn't. You know. So it's not that one. We don't have a theodicy problem of an omnipotent God. Buddha's not omnipotent. Just because here we are. We are, creating, we are creating our futures. We're creating our mandala. So it's not that, nor is it the mindless mechanism of a meaningless, sterile, bleak, alienated, reductionistic, dehumanizing, demoralizing, disempowering, scientific materialistic view. You might sense that I'm really not that fond of it. It's neither one nor the other. Something different. But it's something that can be tested. That's enough. So now let's just have a little meditation session. Right? Practice what you will. It's all in the same current. So whatever you practice within the matrix of practices we've explored in these seven weeks, now's a good time. Please find a comfortable position. The, se the session will be silent.
on us. Let's read a bit of the text before the evening is gone. So we now move to the top of page 176. And the root text says, Meditation, so-called meditation, is another name for not meditating on anything. So now the context is ever so important, right? And I've already explained it, so I don't need to linger. And in terms of the meaning, the meditative equipoise in the meditation of the threefold space is taught in the Tantra of the three phases of liberation by observation. So citing the Tantra, states, O Lord of Mysteries, these are the instructions for actualizing the Dharmakaya. External space is this empty, intervening space. So this is really simple. There's no mystery about it at all. I'm gazing over it, um, Patrice, and I can, she's, she's way over yonder, and so I can focus there. I can focus my eyes way out there, and her face comes into clear focus, or I can just draw my awareness back in, and I can see, well, there's a good deal of space between us. That's the intervening space. Between where you sense you are and where some object out there is, that's intervening space. So nothing mysterious about it at all. Right? So that's external space. And then, internal space, this gets a bit more mysterious. Internal space is the empty, hollow channel that connects the eyes and the heart. So you've heard about this, the hollow crystal kati channel, right? And it's very important, this is emphatically stated, that this channel that starts in the indestructible bindu in the heart, that this is, uh, and then comes up, it's not the same, unequivocally not the same as the avaduti, the central channel that goes you know, through all the chakras out up to the top of the crown of the head. It's not that, right? It starts, it starts there in the heart, and then it bifurcates, it splits into two, and it comes behind the ears, and then it comes out, not through the nostrils, right? But it opens up right there in the pupils of the eyes, right in the eyes. That's where it kind of opens out to the world. And so there's the internal space, there's this hollow crystal kati channel, and the secret space is the precious palace of your own heart. Well, that's going to be the, the root, the root of that hollow crystal kati channel, which is exactly the locus of pristine awareness. So now for the practice. Direct your awareness to your eyes. So you could be focusing on auditory or focus on the mental or what have you, but in this practice it's very visual. And that is, so you bring your awareness to the visual, to the eyes, then you direct your eyes to the intervening space. So there's your target. It does have a target. So this is not like merging, in my understanding, this is not like merging mind with space where you simply release your awareness into space with no object, right? In this one, you actually are attending to the space. It's different. But this is a much, much more advanced stage of practice because you're attending to space from the perspective of Rikpa. That's crucial. This is not shamatha, this is not vipassana. This is rather advanced Dzogchen practice where you've already ascertained Rikpa, you're viewing reality from the perspective of Rikpa, and by not meditating, the meditation of not meditation, the whole idea is in that, in that total inactivity of yourself as a sentient being, then the final veils that filter, that configure your awareness of your own pristine awareness are lifted. So direct your awareness to your eyes, direct your eyes to the intervening space, and by leaving your gaze there, primordial consciousness freely arises. It manifests, it becomes evident. When consciousness is directed to your eyes, non-conceptual awareness alone will appear. 
without being obscured by any compulsive ideation. Well, one can look at this in a very basic Buddhism kind of way, and that is your visual perception is a non-conceptual, in the Buddhist understanding, visual perception is non-conceptual. So therefore, in the, in the appearances themselves, the appearances themselves are non-conceptual. The visual perception of shapes, colors, is non-conceptual. So by bringing your awareness there, focusing it there single-pointedly, then it's not being filtered through compulsive ideation. And bearing in mind, once again, you are doing this from the perspective of Rikpa. So the main practice of the meditation called the meditation of the threefold space is to be practiced while the body is in the posture of Varochana with its seven attributes. So there's the optimal posture, very, very common. Inwardly, so here's the method. Inwardly focus this empty, it's chitata, this empty ultimate reality of the mind. Okay. Have I given the, I think I've given the pair of, of dhammata and chitata, have I not? Good, good, good. Oh, you remember too, excellent. So this is the chitata. So this empty chitata, which is by nature empty and luminous. You know what it is. It's the same thing as rikpa, right? So inwardly focus this empty ultimate reality of the mind on the interconnecting pathway of the empty hollow channel. So you're actually perceiving it from its root. Identifying the aperture, that is the aperture of the two, are the two eyes, identifying the aperture called the fluid lasso lamp entails directing your awareness to the eyes. Now this is right next to the next major phase of Dzogchen meditation called the Tutgel, or direct crossing over, in which the, the classic teachings speak of different types of lamps, four lamps as I recall, and one of them is the fluid lasso lamp. It sounds very strange in English, I'm sure. It's called fluid. It's referring to the eyeballs, that they're not quite, they're not just liquid, but they're kind of like jelly. They're, they're fluidish, you know? So that's just, just that, because they have a kind of a fluid quality to them, a high element of, of water element. Water element, they're called, therefore called fluid. That's why, the eyeball itself, right? Or eyeballs. And then it's called lasso. It's gangshak. And a lasso is something where, we all know, you throw the lasso out and you, ca- and you catch the calf, right? It goes around its neck. And so the awareness goes out and snares, captures from afar. So I'm looking way over there to Hosanna. And so my, my awareness comes out and lassoes her. It goes out and reaches her, touches her, apprehends her, right? And you can look at the stars, the sun, the moon, and so forth. We have a long lasso there. But the notion, that, again, of, of going out into space and then identifying. That's, that's why it's called lasso. And it's called lamp because it illuminates. It illuminates. It illuminates the, the appearances of Hosanna or Dakmar, whoever it may be. So identifying the aperture called the fluid lasso lamp entails directing your awareness to the eyes. Let the eyes gaze fixedly at this fresh external space. Fresh means don't start conceptualizing or, remind, or remembering it. Don't go static. Don't go just keep it fresh, unprecedented, naked, naked just arising moment by moment, unprecedented. So keep it sharp, clear, right in the immediate present. And it's external as described before. Let the eyes gaze fixedly at this fresh external space and also focus your awareness into the space in front of you. I wish I had the Tibetan here. That looks a little bit redundant to me. No, it does look redundant to me. And I can't explain it, but I don't have the Tibetan text with me. But the teaching is clear. Place your awareness in front of you in the space and intervening space without meditating on anything. So once again, this non-objectification. 
So although you're clearly placing your awareness in the space, bear in mind you're doing so, it always has to be said because it's so easy to forget, that you're doing this from the perspective of Rikpa. Well, Rikpa is Rikpa does not entail dualistic grasping. And dualistic grasping is reifying subject, reifying object, and then grasping onto them as being fundamentally and absolutely different. Well, Rikpa doesn't do that. If it did, it would be not Rikpa, right? And so viewing this intervening space from the perspective of Rikpa is going to be different than viewing this intervening space from an ordinary dualistic mind, right? So even though you're placing it there, you're not objectifying it in the sense of slipping into the old syndrome of dualistic grasping. So without meditating on anything, simply without wavering, let it be steady, luminous, and even. So there's the practice. So he continues on page 177. First practice in short sessions. This is classic. It runs everywhere through Buddhism, especially Tibetan Buddhism. That's what I've studied most. But in the beginning, you start with short sessions, keep them really high quality. First practice in short sessions, and as you become accustomed to it, practice in longer and longer sessions. Well, exactly the same Advice is given for shamatha and really for all meditations. Don't go for quantity over quality. Go for quality over quantity and, and extend the quantity as you can continue to maintain the high level of quality. When you bring the session to an end, do not get up abruptly. Don't just break the session, but rise slowly without losing the sense of meditating. In other, other words, sustain that flow of viewing reality from the perspective of Rikpa. And proceed without losing the sense of awareness, and that is pristine awareness, without wavering and without grasping. So there's that phrase, my yin zimit, my yin zimit, without, without uh, distraction, without, without grasping, uh, or without wavering, it's the same, my yod zimit, the same. And so we're seeing this as just a, a, a repeated refrain, I guess refrains are always repeated, but we have that right there so explicitly in settling the mind in its natural state. How are you sustaining it? Stillness of your awareness, maintain that without distraction, which means without wavering and without latching onto. And so again, the techniques will look very similar. The, the awareness of awareness looks a lot like other presentations of Dzogchen meditation. Settling the mind in its natural state looks a lot like certain presentations of Dzogchen meditation or Mahamudra. But you, you see by context that something that looks like the same method is actually a different method because it's being done from a different context, a different perspective. It's really crucial. But the methods wind up being quite similar as you go along, but they are different because you're different. As you eat, drink, speak, and engage in every activity, do so without losing the century of unwavering mindfulness. Well, once again, there's a lovely parallel. You know, your basic vipassana course, weekend retreat, one-week retreat, or ten days, that's really the central core teaching right there. Whatever you're doing, not just when you're on a meditation cushion. This is the, one of the strengths of this kind of modern, what I call the modern Vipassana movement, which has helped so many, many people. Uh, a central theme was right there, and that is whatever you're doing, you're eating, you're walking, you're standing, you're cooking, you're going to the bathroom, whatever you're doing, just maintain this ongoing flow of mindful engagement, not caught up in rumination, not distracted, and then not grasping, I like it, I don't like it, I want, I hope, I fear. Try to just be with whatever's occurring. Good idea, before we latch on to it, hope, fear, and all of that. That's really core, core Vipassana teaching, given all over the world now, and that's be thousands of Vipassana centers. 
it's really good teaching. It's really helpful. Is that Vipassana? I don't know. I don't, see it. I don't think it's Vipassana. It's mindfulness. If you look in Tsongkhapa's teachings, go back before the teachings on the precious human rebirth, before, you know, before you've even begun, really, when you're in preschool, the Lamrim. Look in the Lamrim Shemo. You look in his, his, in his instructions on the, your conduct. That's what, that's what he says there. And that is, an, and he cites a Sangha, I believe it was. It's been years since I've read it. But he cites a Sangha, I believe. And that is, in all of your activities, maintain an ongoing vigilance, your mindfulness, your introspection, and also your conscientiousness. That is, you're aware of, is, your, is the way of speaking, the way of acting, is this conducive, is it harmonious with Dharma? Is it incompatible with Dharma? Watch your mind, are mental afflictions coming up? So it's not just a bare attention, but it definitely is mindfulness. But it's enriched mindfulness, enriched with wisdom, enriched with ethics, enriched with introspection, conscientiousness, a sense of this is suitable, this is not suitable, this is wholesome, this is not wholesome, and not kind of like, well, whatever happens, whatever. You know. So, but the parallel is interesting, that if you took this out of context, you say, oh, but that's Vipassana. That's, that, that's, that, that's what you get when you never heard anything about meditation, you come to a Vipassana retreat, that's what they'll tell you. But we see, yeah, it's good. Same instruction. Except for it's totally different. By context. By context. That's why one wants, I think, if one really is interested in understanding authentic Vipassana and authentic Dzogchen, one wants to be quite wary of some very, very popular Oh, it's all one. Look, I plucked this out of natural liberation. This is Dzogchen. It's the same as I was teaching. It's Vipassana. No, no, it's then. No, no, it's choiceless awareness. It's all one. Ah, good. That's the essence of meditation. Just be here now. But wait a minute. Ram Dass said that a long time ago, and he wasn't Buddhist. Well, maybe he's an honorary Buddhist. So, so but it's good teaching. As you eat, drink, speak, and engage in every activity, do so without losing the century of unwavering mindfulness. If this happens in meditative equipoise, but not afterwards, so if you kind of really focus when you're meditating, but then you kind of slack off or get sloppy, by integrating this with your spiritual practice, so reintroduce it, get it in there, integrate, by integrating this with your spiritual practice and, and all activities of moving, walking, lying down, and sitting, whatever you do will appear as meditation, will arise as meditation. In others, you're going to find less and less difference, especially in this phase of Dzogchen. Less and less difference of the, med- the meditative equipoise, the nyamshak, when you're formally in meditation, and the jetop, that is your, or, your tunsamgikap, the, uh, your activity, your experience in between formal meditation sessions. Um, and you'll note here, he says, moving, walking, lying down, and sitting. Ever seen that, 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 those four before? Sadapatana Sutta. Basic, fundamental, foundational Buddhism. That you're practicing with introspection in all of these four postures. Which means, oh, lying down. It's Dzogchen practice. <laughs> you know, now it has the imprimatur. Padmasambhava says, you may lie down. You know. So there it is. But, but whatever you do, whatever you do will arise as meditation. And that's what you're not taking a break. It's just shifting context. And as we're slowly approaching the end of this retreat, I think these are really words of wisdom to reflect upon and in anticipation, thinking, well, wherever you're going from here, here we have this very conducive environment, you know what it is, I don't need to describe it, and then, and it's very conducive for shamatha and spending many hours a day in meditation, maintaining silence, and so forth, Uh, and in a couple of weeks, then we won't be here, 
And so then, instead of thinking, okay, the retreat's over, now my, my formal practice is finished, the retreat is over, 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 thinking, all right, now how can I take those qualities of awareness, of attention, the heart, loving kindness, compassion, and so forth, and how can I continue practicing with the same degree of dedication, of commitment, of intelligence, and just shift the context? It used to be here, and now it's there. It used to be in a relatively contemplative environment, and now it's in a socially active environment. But I'm still practicing with the same degree of dedication. That would be a smooth transition to do that. And we have such an array now with the four immeasurables, the four greats, you know, the various modes of shamatha, the dzogchen. We have a pretty good bouquet here. You know? So really, even with just what's been taught in these last seven weeks or so, there's plenty there to fully integrate into an active way of life. Read a tiny bit more. There's a treatise that states, when meditating, do not meditate on anything at all, for in the absolute space of phenomena, that's Dhammadhatu, for in the absolute space of phenomena, there is nothing on which to meditate. And I'm going to save the quote until later. So there it is, quite clear. But I hope, you know, I've gone out of my way to explain context, because if one misses that, then you kind of miss everything. You'll, you'll misunderstand everything here uh, and fail to recognize there is actually a path here. Because this is coming after all of that teaching on Shamadha Vipassana and the Dream Yoga, everything there. So, quite impressive, I think. That's good. So, enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow morning.